Before we start, we have two events coming up in June that our East Coast and West Coast listeners should know about. On June 15th, Postscript Media is holding Transition AI Boston. It's a one-day conference in downtown Boston digging deep into the applications for artificial intelligence and the energy system. We're going to have panels, networking, and a workshop on ChatGPT. Speakers include Priya Donti, the co-founder and executive director of Climate Change AI, Pamela Isom, who is the former executive director of AI and technology at the U.S. Department of Energy, Patrick Walsh, a general partner at National Grid Partners, and Savannah Goodman, the data and software climate solutions lead at Google. So if you're in the business of energy and climate tech and a better understanding of AI is important to your job, you should come to the event. Again, downtown Boston, June 15th. Our listeners get a 20% discount. Follow the link in the show notes and use the code PSPODS20 when you buy your ticket. And for those of you over on the West Coast, our friends at Canary Media are hosting their next live event in Seattle on June 28th. It's going to be a good one. I can attest I've done multiple events with Canary, and uh, Canary Live Seattle is going to feature some of the biggest names in our industry, like Amy Harder, David Roberts, Ramez Nam, as well as Canary's executive editor, Lisa Hymas. The venue is the legendary radio station KEXP in downtown Seattle, and you can expect some amazing panels and lively networking. Again, uh, we've done multiple shows with Canary. The Canary Live events are incredible, so go check it out, canarymedia.com slash Seattle to get your tickets today. Don't miss out on either of these events. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. As I record this, there's still no agreement on raising the debt ceiling here in America. That's the limit on borrowing for the U.S. Treasury. And if it's not adjusted upward soon, the government could default on its debt. That could happen in June. And what that really means is that we won't have enough money to pay for programs like Social Security, Medicare, food assistance, farm loans, air traffic control, parts of the military. It would also damage our credit rating, increase the cost to borrow, and, um, yeah, throw the national economy into recession, potentially. The stakes are incredibly high, and that is certainly true for the clean energy industry. Republicans with a slim majority in the House of Representatives want to slash spending before agreeing to raise the debt limit. And part of that plan, unveiled in April, includes gutting incentives for clean energy manufacturing, electric vehicles, and renewables projects through the Inflation Reduction Act. Biden said hell no to that one. Negotiations are ongoing. It's possible a deal will be struck soon. I've heard from a couple people who think the IRA will remain untouched. But I've also talked to a couple of companies who are holding any investments until this problem is resolved. In any case, even if these are hollow threats, they are just economically insane. According to the Financial Times, Republican-held congressional districts are getting five times more funding for clean energy projects, including new manufacturing plants, than ones controlled by Democrats through this IRA legislation. That's 77,000 jobs hanging in the balance in Republican districts. And thanks to the IRA, a lot of activity is already happening. So the U.S. Department of Energy has estimated that 13 battery gigafactories have been announced in the U.S. That's from earlier this year. That's huge. 
Shalini Ramanathan is the director of origination at Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. She goes out and finds large projects worth investing in, and she's paying close attention to the surge of new manufacturing plans since the IRA was passed last year. If you have solar manufacturing know-how, you know, the U.S. is a great place to do business right now. So we saw uh, Longy announce a deal, a five-gigawatt project. This is a solar plant in Ohio. Um, Invenergy is going to be an anchor customer for that, but it'll serve other customers as well. Um, So solar batteries, uh, you know, huge opportunities to create here and manufacture here and then capture that value. In the nine months since the IRA was signed into law, $28 billion in new manufacturing investments have been unveiled. Credit Suisse expects the IRA to support $1.7 trillion in new manufacturing in a decade. And Shalini is watching the space, eager to see the growth, but also eager to see a whole new category of customers, because a green industrial strategy needs green electrons and molecules to run it. We're all asking the question, now that we have low-cost green power, what can we do with it? You know, what other sectors can we decarbonize? What new products can we make? And that's not a conversation any of us were having, you know, except conceptually 15 years ago. On that basis alone, the U.S. just has a competitive advantage in siting of a lot of these plants and in, you know, new industries like green hydrogen. The wave of planned build-outs in U.S. manufacturing is setting the stage for a new class of renewables designed to run those plants. And it could shift how and where projects get built. So I think the reason to care is because this could really reshape our landscape. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a second-order impact of America's green manufacturing strategy, a coming boom in projects to meet that new industrial demand. We'll ask how renewables, batteries, and hydrogen could meet the moment. I want to take a brief moment to talk about the new season of the Big Switch podcast. We've been working on this for the last six months. We're so excited to bring it to you. Our production team at Latitude Media has been working for years with Dr. Melissa Lott and the team at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy uh, to make the Big Switch. It's a narrative show about how to rebuild our energy systems. And we are back with a five-part series exploring the supply chains behind lithium-ion batteries and the very complicated economic and political forces that come as batteries take over the world. So in this season, we break batteries apart, go to mining operations, manufacturing facilities, recycling plants, and talk to some of the most prominent experts about the pitfalls and promise of our expanding battery-based energy economy. And you'll hear the trailer a bit later in the show. So if this sounds like something you want to listen to, find The Big Switch anywhere you get your podcasts. A few weeks ago, we had a show about Biden's green industrial strategy. If you haven't heard it, I recommend you go back and check it out. It's kind of about the history and the principles behind that strategy. It'll take some time to really know how it's working, but the early signs are positive. Tens of billions of dollars in new factories, tens of thousands of new jobs, and forecasts for explosive demand in new renewables and storage, assuming we can connect them to the grid, of course. I spoke with Shalini about how this might influence the way projects get built. And we started first with the urgency of building a new green industrial base in the first place. 
So China refines 65% of the lithium worldwide, and it may come from other places. A lot of it comes from Australia, but it's refined in China. And that means that if there are trade tensions, they have control over something that is important to the U.S. So that's one big challenge that the IRA tackles. Another one that it tackles are supply chain transparency and supply chain certainty. Um, A lot of polysilicon is right now, it's made in the Uyghur region of China. They're, you know, known human rights abuses, well-documented. And uh, by transferring the polysilicon supply chain, um, you know, to the U.S. and other countries that we're on, you know, better terms with, we protect ourselves um, from the charges of, you know, labor abuses. And, you know, we live up to our our ESG policies. Um, You know, we also just have uh, greater supply chain certainty if we are manufacturing in the U.S. Um, because, you know, we've seen during the COVID lockdown how just-in-time manufacturing works until it doesn't. And it just is a a problem that certainly had on wind and solar and energy storage projects where you couldn't get, you know, key components on time. And so with the IRA, you have this opportunity to really, you know, just manage your supply chain and have greater certainty and, you know, just hopefully avoid a lot of the interruptions. Um, And finally, there's an amazing um, initiative in the IRA to create jobs in the U.S. Um, And through the, in my long history of renewable energy, we've essentially been buying equipment from other countries, you know, mostly China, and using them here in projects in the U.S. And it's been a climate benefit, but we haven't captured jobs and investment um, in the U.S. And the IRA, again, it's an audacious policy um, that tries to knit together all of these different goals, some of which are in tension with each other, right? Because if you want really low-cost green power, um, you know, creating jobs with prevailing wages and having apprenticeship programs, you know, there's some tension with that. But uh, to me, what's amazing is that the IRA takes climate policy and really just makes it, you know, industrial policy. This is not a new conversation in the United States. In the wake of the financial crisis through the stimulus package, we did see increased investments in domestic uh, electric vehicle manufacturing, battery manufacturing, and solar manufacturing, um, much of it coming through the loan guarantee program. And um, as a result of other countries, particularly China, investing in those sectors far more than the U.S. could, uh, we we lost that part of the uh, of the race. How would you compare what is happening today to some of those earlier green industrial efforts? Well, it certainly builds on them. And I think one of the advantages we have today is that we have more solar and wind and energy storage installed. You know, the industries are more mature. And I think that has caught... That has built the political support for industrial policy. It, you know, it, it doesn't seem as far-fetched as maybe it seemed, you know, 30 years ago, um, you know, to say that this, that clean energy could be the basis um, of a lot of new industry. So I think we built on everything that's happened in the past and helped enormously by the progress made. So one of the reasons why we're having this conversation is because we want to explore how to serve that industrial base with more clean energy. And now that we have all this clean, cheap, abundant energy, how do you use it effectively so that you can make sure that that green industrial base is actually green itself when you're producing all these products? So 
This is something that you have been thinking a lot about. What kind of opportunity do you think it opens up for renewable energy development as new projects start to get into the queue? It cr- it opens up, in a geographic sense, new locations. Um, you know, one of the challenges of renewable power development uh, in my long history with it is that the places where uh, the solar and wind resource are um, are the strongest isn't necessarily where you have people, you know, or, or factories that need power. So the split between uh, generation and load, as, as we think about it, um, is, is really a challenge because then you have to transmit that power and, you know, and you incur costs along the way and the transmission may not be there. What's exciting about expanding the manufacturing base um, in the U.S. is uh, that, um, you know, you now can perhaps site renewable power projects in locations that you couldn't before because there was no economic activity there before. And you were taking the risk that you could produce low-cost power, but there was no one that you could really sell it to, which, you know, isn't, isn't a great business decision. So I think it really unlocks a lot of exciting opportunities in terms of location. And in terms of a diversification of generation so that, you know, we don't have all the renewable power developers, I've I've done it too, all chasing the same number of projects, you know, outside of the Dallas, Texas area, you know, just because that's clearly a load pocket. So I think it's uh, it's exciting, and it also takes potentially a risk off the table, which is that between generating green power in one location and transmitting it, get delivering it, so to speak, it's usually a financial trade, but in that process of getting it to another location, you know, you incur um, some costs and some bottlenecks, and this siting along with manufacturing or you know, citing with manufacturing load in mind could potentially reduce that risk. So there are other industries that we can look to where we are seeing more sophisticated renewable supply load matching in the data center industry and uh, in the Bitcoin industry at, you know, at the height of uh, the crypto madness. We did see a lot of projects that were designed to, to match the the needs of Bitcoin miners. So what kind of activity are you seeing in those spaces and what might we learn from that kind of activity that we could apply to manufacturing? So there are two things that uh, are worth talking about. The first is that data centers and a lot of the companies that operate data centers have been major buyers of green power. And because they have, you know, gigawatts of power purchase agreements, uh, many of them, you know, Google comes to mind, are really pushing for 24-7 green power, which is to say that a given data center, every hour of power that it consumes off the grid, brown power, should be matched by green power, um, you know, every every hour of it, right? And that's really different from saying that in the aggregate, all the power that's, that's consumed is matched by what's produced. They're really focusing on that matching. And uh, we think about this a lot at Quinbrook, and one of my colleagues calls it the missing hours problem, because you inevitably will have a few hours where wind or solar or battery storage are too expensive. And uh, and, and so that make matching that, that 24-7 profile becomes a challenge. And this is an ongoing area, um, you know, of, of, of innovation. So we'll see what we figure out. 
Um, in terms of Bitcoin, I think one of the reasons that cryptocurrency is interesting is because it's interruptible load. And so, the, you know, the crypto mining facilities are happy to use your low-cost green power and then go offline when it makes more sense to sell that green power. And that doesn't have to be specific to crypto mining. There are perhaps other facilities uh, that can follow renewable generation instead of just, you know, just using power whenever they need it and, you know, trying to match their, uh, their usage profile. So I think there are lessons to be learned from, you know, existing, our ex existing experience uh, with green power procurement. I'm Dr. Melissa Watt, and I'm the host of The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild our energy systems. Batteries are finding their way into everything, from cars and heavy equipment to the electric grid. But scaling up production to meet the demands of a net-zero economy is complicated, and it's contentious. If every country says we need to own the entire supply chain because we want all of those economic benefits, it's going to make the clean energy transition so much harder. In a new five-part series, we're digging into the global battery supply chain, from mining to manufacturing, and we're asking what gets mined, traded, and consumed on the road to decarbonization. If we think climate change is the existential threat facing our planet, we have to be having a broad conversation about where we want to get the minerals that build these products. Listen to The Big Switch from Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy, available on February 28th, wherever you get your podcasts. So what are the innovations that make it possible? Is it just like contracting or is it actual delivery of the energy? Where, where do the innovations need to happen? There are some definitely some technology innovations. Like I think long duration batteries are interesting and worth watching. And there's some exciting things happening in that sector. Um, there are also, you know, I'm not going to call it an innovation, but some advances in contracting um, where, you know, if you have trading desks that can match up power from different projects. And I also think that green hydrogen could potentially have a role to play. It's early days for green hydrogen as, as much as we, as I love talking about it, it's worth noting. It's just really it at its start as an industry, um, but you could have green hydrogen providing backup power to fuel cells, and that would be a way of getting to 24-7 power. I, I'm not offering to like sign any contracts for that today, but we're thinking about it. So what are the kinds of projects that you might see? Do you think they'll be weighted in, in the wind space? Will they be weighted in the solar space? Will it be a combination of, of, of hybrid projects? Like, where, how do you see, you know, conventional renewables and batteries serving those loads? And then are there other technologies you see coming in to fill the gap as well? First of all, I love the phrase conventional renewables <laughs> because, you know, when I started working, we were called alternative energy, right? So the fact that it's now conventional renewables is, you know, huge progress. Very excited. Um, so I think we'll see. It, it'll depend on where the new load goes and where the needs are. So if you're going to be, uh, you know, developing a project in the southeast, uh, you know, of the U.S., that is probably going to be solar. There are only, a, you know, really a handful of, of pockets of wind resource there. Um, I also think that, uh, so the resource is going to matter a lot. Um, I also think that the, the profile of each individual 
user of each individual manufacturing plant is going to matter a lot. You know, are, are you able to run at night? That might argue for wind. Um, are, you know, do you need to be online during peak power? Is it a batch processing plant or continuous? So I think it'll be a combination of everything, but fundamentally it will have to be uh, based on, you know, what is available and what is low cost. Because one thing that, you know, it's, it's worth focusing on is, you know, manufacturing uh, as a sector is huge hugely price sensitive. You know, people notice when, um, you know, when the, the cost of a component goes up. So I think the power has to be, you know, green, but also low cost. And that's going to determine what's what's developed. There's also another question about heat. How much of that are you paying attention to? We are very focused on green hydrogen as a solution to the, you know, thermal problem. Because, uh, look, we want to electrify everything we can and then make sure that electricity is provided with green power. Electrify and then decarbonize. Um, but there are some things that you can't directly electrify. And, you know, steel, cement, there are these hard-to-abate sectors. And I think that green hydrogen, we're going to need a molecule. You know, it's, it's probably not going to be an electron. It'll be a molecule. And uh, right now, it looks like green hydrogen, you know, thanks in part to the, you know, incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act is a leading candidate to address that. And it also has a huge impact on what you can do. Um, because, you know, if you have low-cost green hydrogen, you know, you can then, you know, have heavy industry in a cost-competitive way. And if we do get this right, what do you think our green industrial sector will look like in the country? I think that the biggest change is that instead of just buying equipment to make, you know, to, to build projects, we're actually manufacturing equipment and actually a little bit more in control of our destiny and a little bit less worried about supply chain interruptions. I think anyone who's been working to, to deliver a project in the past few years um, has really seen the interrupt how interruptions in supply chain um, can create, you know, can create real hassles and increase the price. And uh, I think by controlling more of the supply chain and, you know, instead of buying the components we need, making them, we just capture more of the value. I think it leads to a lot of wealth creation. The U.S. now has two advantages. It has, on the whole, on a global basis, low-cost green power, and it has the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act. And that means that it's going to be really hard to beat the U.S. as a location for manufacturing. The low-cost green power, that's directly a result of the fact that we've installed gigawatts worth of projects. That, you know, didn't happen overnight. It happened because of, um, you know, all the hard work of the industry to getting steel in the ground. And those two factors, along with, you know, the fact that we have talented workforce, we have universities, um, it's really, it feels like a lot of things are aligning to create um, change right now. Shalini Ramanathan, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for the show. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Don't forget, we are both holding events for East Coast and West Coast listeners. We've got Transition AI on June 15th in Boston. Go to the link in the show notes to get your ticket now. We're going to have venture investors, utilities, startups, AI experts, and then Canary Live Seattle as well, June 28th. Uh, that's going to be at KEXP in Seattle. And they've got some 
awesome people, including Ramez Nam and David Roberts there and some Canary editors. So uh, go to the show notes. You can find both events there. The episode this week was produced by me with support from Dalvin Abawaje. Sean Marquand is our engineer. Original music comes from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. And uh, Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with uh, startups, entrepreneurs to address climate change across energy, food, ag, transportation, materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Pass the link around on social media or to a friend and colleague. And thanks. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Carbon Copy.